Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing today. We thank you for just not just the miracle of this building, not just the miracle that are in our families, but just we thank you, God, for the miracle of new birth. And we thank you that you're moving all over the world. No matter what people think, just like the prophet said, that in the last days you would move all over the world. And so, Lord, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've been speaking on fatherhood for nearly six weeks. I don't know how long I'll be on this subject, but I really feel like that there is a prophetic, uh, if you will, epoch season in which God is restoring fatherhood. If you've heard any of my messages in the last month, um, I, this is probably been, I think it's about the only subject I've been sharing on, with the exception of the school ministry. I've been shared on it in the, in the prophetic conference, because I feel like that this is not just a teaching, I feel like it's a prophetic declaration about a season that God has called us to. A season not just for Bethel Church, but a season in the earth. In, uh, Malachi, in the book of Malachi chapter 4, Malachi says, in the last days I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And he's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons and the hearts of sons to fathers. At least I smite the nation with the curse. And, I, and I, I want you to know that in America, and I know that many of you are from different nations, in America, this is the most fatherless generation in the history of America in which our fathers did not die in war. Now, in the Civil War, for example, there was 31 million people in America. That was our population. And 687,000 men died in the Civil War. And of course, it took two decades to remove that fatherlessness from our country. But our fathers were not absent, they were dead. This is the most fatherless season in the history of America in which our fathers are alive, but they aren't home. And it's really interesting to me and inspiring that Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, that Malachi, you know, it's all one of the prophets there. When Malachi saw a, a, a people group, a generation, not where, they weren't, where there weren't fathers, but where they weren't fathering. And I believe, that God is, I believe that God is releasing, if you will, a spirit of fathering in which there is, a, there is going to be a transition back home. I see fathers coming home. I had this vision this morning. Just a, it was only about three seconds long. And I saw fathers who have been sperm donors and never really fathers. I don't know if I should say that streaming. But they were just like, suddenly they said, I want to I know my son. I want to know my daughter. And there was just this, there was this a sudden conviction. I mean conviction in a good way. I'm going home. I need to meet my children. I need to be a part of a family. And I just felt that the Lord, like, like birds migrate uh, you know, south in the winter, that there was this thing coming on men all over America and probably all over the world. But I saw it as an American. I saw it over the American map that God was putting the Spirit on men, and men were beginning to want to meet their sons, want to meet their daughters. And I saw daughters and sons with the Spirit of Reconciliation on them. And I believe we're in this massive Spirit of, re- uh, of recon- uh, Reconciliation, kind of like the promise keepers, but ten times the size. And I believe that God is calling men home to be fathers. Whoosh. 
Many years ago, I think it was the very first year I was here, I've told this story several times, so I'll give you the abridged version, that we had five prophets in a year prophesy that revival was coming from the youth. And I, we love the youth, by the way, and I have eight grandchildren. I have no problem with that theology whatsoever. But the third time, I'm sorry, the fourth time it happened, I was sitting in the front row. It was on a Friday night. I still remember it vividly. I fell on the floor and I was weeping. Now, I'm not much of a fall-on-the-floor weeper guy. And I, and I didn't know why I was on the floor weeping. Have you ever had God talk to your heart but not your head? I was like, I'm laying there and I'm weeping and I have no idea why. We had just prayed for God to come, you know, to, for the young people that revival was coming from the youth. This is the fourth time. And I, I don't know if I was going through menopause. I couldn't figure out what was happening to me. And I, 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 I left. I went home that, that night. I was like, what was that about? I have no idea what it was about. And, uh, and then about three, two or three months later, it was in December. I still remember it very vividly. I, I had the same thing happen again. This, we, were, we were praying for this prophetess. It was a woman, very, very, very good lady. She was prophesying revivals coming from the youth, and we were praying for the youth. And I was like, I don't know what happened, but this, I, just started to, I just started to cry and wail. And I was like, what is going on? i got to get out of here. And I ran out of the church and drove home. Not good when you're the pastor. <laughs> And we were living in a little apartment. I'm laying on the floor and I'm weeping. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm, I'm like, am I going crazy? What is happening to me? And the Lord said to me, revival is not coming from the youth. He said, my, my prophets are speaking from the second heaven. He said, revival is coming from one generation. Old, young, middle-aged, from one generation. And immediately I had this vision. And in this vision, I saw this father with two daughters and he said to the one daughter, you're beautiful, but said nothing to the second. They were in another place in the vision. They were in another location. And the father said to the same daughter, you're beautiful, but said nothing to the second. The, they were in another place that this happened a third time. And the, the two daughters were in the same place, in another place with their father. And their father looked at the same daughter and said, you're beautiful, but said nothing to the second. And the Lord said to me, omission is powerful. And he said, if you say the revival is coming from the youth, what are you saying to the middle age? And what are you saying to the elders? And the Lord said to me, what generation does your, what generation does, does your culture honor? Everybody's trying to be young. People say, you're young at heart. Everybody's dying their hair. I'm, I'm good with die. I'm good with die. I'm all good. It's all good. But I'm saying the goal is to not be old. And the, and the Lord said, what generation does my, does my kingdom, does my Bible honor? Oh, a gray head is a crown. Fathers. And I, I said, fatherhood. I said, the Lord, Lord, you, you honor the elderly. He said, that's right. And he reminded me, Psalms 133, the, uh, the anointing begins over the top of Aaron's head. It says, how good and how pleasant it is for men, for, for children, to, to, for people to dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing that starts from the top of Aaron's head. And it flows all the way down over his feet. How many know that if you stay in right order, that you're just as anointed as a toe? as it is on the head. How many of you know the anointing flows downhill? Crap flows that way too, but so does anointing. Now, I began to realize Acts 2.14 says, in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit on, help me, all flesh, all flesh, not your sons and your daughters, but all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon your bond servants will I pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. How many know revival doesn't have a gender? Help me, ladies. Revival doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a generation, old and young. 
And it doesn't have a social class, even upon your bond servants. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you're included. That's a good word. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks about, in verse 9, he says, Don't call any man on earth your father, for one is your father, he is in heaven. I love, I love the Bible because the Bible is truth held in tension. You get these verses about, don't call anybody father, and then you get Paul saying, I'm your father, and you're like, hey, you're not supposed to say that. And you realize that Jesus has a context in which he's talking to, to us in. By the way, he says, don't call any man teacher, don't call, and he goes through this list of titles, you know, you're all pretty much eliminated. <laughs> I love the counsel of Jesus, you know, he says, like, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Can you imagine your son going to a counseling appointment and he comes back with you know, one, one hand gone and one eye? He's like, what happened? I went to some Christian counselor, you know. Thank you, Jesus, you know. We took Jesus literally right out of the Bible, you know. So. But there is a revelation of fathering in the new covenant that Jesus brought to us. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray what? Our Father. He didn't say pray our God. How many understand when the world needed a Savior, the Father sent a son to make sons and daughters. I'm simply saying that we weren't born in a conference. We were born in a covenant. Like we're actually part of a global family. When you got saved, you got saved into a family. And listen, lots of people need to know this. Like you got saved into a family. Jesus didn't say make Christians. He said make disciples. The goal is that you actually have fathers and mothers in your life. Good point, Chris. Look at those mountains. So awesome. In the Old Testament, what's that have to do with your message? I don't know. You guys just look so serious. In the Old Testament, the word father is used 613 times. 613 times. Do you know how many times it's used for God in the Old Testament? Four. Four times. 613 times the word father is used in the Old Testament, and only four times did they ever use the word father for God. I'm making a point here. I'm coming to it. In the New Testament, which obviously is much shorter, right? Less pages. The word father is used 311 times. 311 times. Do you know how many times it's used for God? 249 times. 80% of the time the word Father is used in the New Testament. It's used to talk about the Heavenly Father. My point is, is that the New Testament is the revelation of a good father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, would you turn there please? Verse 15. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, a church that he actually gave birth to from the standpoint that he led these Corinthians, these Greek mythologists really, to Christ. And he says this to them, For you may have countless tutors, some of your translations say teachers, in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ I have become your father through the gospel. Verse 16, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up, back up the PC train. Did you hear what Paul just said? He said, be imitators of what? Me. How many of you know this is a, one of the most politically incorrect statements in the entire Bible? Paul said, I want you to imitate me. People say, oh no, don't follow me, follow Christ. Well, where the heck are you going? If I'm following you and I'm not following Christ, you need to turn around. 
And Paul says, I want you to be imitators of me. For this reason, for what reason? Because I want you to imitate me. I've sent you Timothy, who is my beloved, faithful child in the Lord, that he may teach you, here we go, my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I will not be coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the words of those who are, uh, who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of words, but power. Next verse. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in the spirit of gentleness? Have you ever read that verse before? Paul just said, I want you to become like me. I thought you want me to become like Jesus. When you become like me, you're becoming like Jesus. Because I'm becoming like Jesus. Then he said, I'm going to send you Timothy. Why am I sending you Timothy? Because he's a son who knows me well. And what's he going to do? He's going to teach you my ways. It's getting very quiet in here. And we are streaming. I can imagine what's happening in homes right now. I can just picture people laying on the floor like, false prophet, false prophet. But I'm reading right from the Bible. I'm reading right from the Bible here. Paul just said, I'm sending you Tim. Tim knows me well. Tim's a son. And Tim's going to teach you, and you think he's going to say Christ's ways, but he says my ways. He's going to teach you my ways. And by the way, I've been doing this for a long time, Paul says, and I've been teaching this everywhere in every church. What is he teaching them everywhere in every church? How to be like me. Okay. Whew. Good point, Chris. Okay, five things Paul says that I think are amazing. Number one, there's a difference between teaching and fathering. You may have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. Number two, Paul became their father through the gospel. Although he was teaching them the gospel, he was not their teacher, but their father. Number three, all fathers teach, but not all teachers father. Okay, number four, the goal of fathering isn't that you know what I know, but that you imitate who I am. Let me say it again. The goal of fathering isn't that... See, the goal of teaching is that you know what I know. But the goal of fathering is that you become who I am. Number five, fathers have authority to discipline their sons and their daughters. I want to read you a verse. Uh, You might want to strap in. I think we're going to hit some turbulence. (laughs) Hebrews 13, 17. It's probably been removed from most of your translations. (laughs) That's a joke. Verse 17, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I don't know if you heard what the Hebrew writer just said. He just said that there are leaders who will give account to God for you. Okay, let me try over here. There are leaders, spiritual leaders, who God will require to give an account for your life. Do you know that? Like, no one tells, I'm, I, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm sorry, he happens to be invisible. How do we know if you're following? It's, it's funny to me, and I've said this many times, that we will go to work for an ungodly person, which we should, it's all great. We will do what that ungodly person says to do. You know, be here at eight. You know, if I'm working for UPS, you know, look like a chocolate bar. <laughs> Take a break at these times. Do everything they told. We will do all of that for money. But then we come in the church, 
And we, want, we, won't, we don't want anyone to have any authority over us. Isn't it funny that we'll do for love, what we'll do for money, what we won't do for love? I think there's a name for that. I'm trying. I'm trying hard. Paul goes on to say, in, in fact, the Hebrew writer says um, that if, if, you, if we don't receive discipline, that we're bastard sons, orphans, and not sons. Do you know the difference between an orphan and a son is discipline? Do you know that Jesus never said make Christians? He said make disciples. The word disciple comes from the word discipline. Do you know that in order to follow Christ, you have to invite discipline into your life and discipline separates you from the orphanage? I'm simply saying, I understand it's not politically correct. I know why I'm preaching right now in this, it feels like molasses and it's not anointing. Every preacher knows what it's like when you're plowing new territory. I'm saying, in the absence of fathering, we've lost fathering principles, and we've become a global orphanage and can't figure out why. And I'm saying, fathering brings certain principles, as does mothering. One of the things fathering brings is discipline. Fathering brings discipline. I think if we, we could probably load buses with, with grandmas and grandpas and do drive-by spankings, and probably we wouldn't have drive-by shootings. We spanked our children prophetically. Probably some of you did too. It's like, you, you know, they're fighting. You're like, you can't figure out who started it. So you just spank them both. Like, it wasn't my fault. Like, that's for the next time. We don't have spankings anymore. We have school shootings. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. This, this, has been, this is a, a commandment that's been repeated over and over and over. Jesus, Jesus repeats this. Paul repeats this. Peter repeats this. Honor your mother and father, which is your first commandment with a promise. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise. The promise is you'll have a long life. Honor your mother and father, and your mother and father won't kill you. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying if you honor your mother and father, <laughs> some of you are like, I know that guy. <laughs> I was raised in that house. You honor your mother and father, and you, and you create a highway. Did you get it? A highway for blessing. The lowest level of life is curses. The Bible says that before we knew Jesus, we were under a curse. What's a curse? A curse is when you do the right thing, but the wrong thing still happens. He said to Adam, you're going to till the ground, you're going to, you're going to work in the field, but it's going to yield thorns and thistles. The next level of life is called sowing and reaping. It means that I actually get the fruit of the seeds I planted. How many know that's a lot better than curses? But the highest level of life is not sowing and reaping. The highest level of life is inheritance. Inheritance is mentioned many times throughout the Bible. It's depicted in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus said, The birds of the air, they don't sow, nor do they reap, but the Father takes care of them. Inheritance means I don't get what I deserve. I get what someone else worked for for free. How many know that if you separate the generations, Malachi 4, which is, is the prophecy is we're joining the generations. When you separate the generations, there's no such thing as sowing and reaping because you're the biggest thing in the jungle. But when you join the generations, you get not what you deserve, but what people before you deserve, what they worked for. Are you with me? I grew up in a, in a Spanish family. My grandparents actually came from Spain. 
and anybody else grew up in a Latin kind of family. And so we had a patriarch and a matriarch. We had a mother, my grandmother and grandfather were the oldest in the family, and we're moving towards that eldership ourselves now, so I like to preach this a lot. And, uh, and you honored the oldest in the family. And one of the ways you did it is that Thanksgiving and Christmas, you visited my grandparents' house. You're like, I don't feel like going. Listen, I didn't ask you if you feel like going. You're going. And I didn't ask you if you're hungry. You're eating. That was my grandmother's deal. How many of you had a grandmother like that? Yes. Like, Grandma, what do you want? I, I'm, I'm not hungry. Okay, do you want turkey or chicken? I, I, I'm not hungry. Okay, we'll give you beef. You know, it's just... Use a state, right? And, and, of course, lots of people show up. We have a big family, so... You know, we have a, we have you have the table, the regular table, uh, my grandmother's table set. I think ten or twelve, and then and then you have the card tables, right? And they go all the way into the hallway. And then you have the plywood. <laughs> you remember this? So this is the, and then so you know the adults, the elders, they sat at the real table, and then if you're like a teenager, you sat at the card table, and then if you're a kid, you sat at the plywood, right? And I remember being fifteen, going on forty-five. And I decided that this family needed to come into the new wineskin. Whoever's there first gets the best seat. So I walked in and sat at the regular table. I don't ever remember someone telling me that I shouldn't sit at that table. And to this day, I don't remember anyone telling me that I couldn't. But when I sat at that table, all the elders sat down for dinner. And it was funny that nobody prayed and nobody ate. They just stared at me. And my mother's looking at me like, you cannot be that stupid. So I got up, and by the time I got up to move, the only table available was the plywood. <laughs> and I figured out that when you exalt yourself, you get humbled. <laughs> and I realized that Jesus has invited us to a rectangular table. You remember the story? He talked about the guest coming, taking too high of a seat for himself. Well, I actually did that one time, and I realized the plywood, I ended up having to sit with the little children. And my mother thought that was very funny. It was very funny. And by the way, from then on, until I was very adultish, I sat at the card tables, right where I belonged. My point is, is that when you honor your elders, you actually receive an inheritance. But honor needs to be built into our culture, and it's largely lost in our culture. Proverbs says, a house and wealth are inheritance from fathers. Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Many years ago, I was in the prayer chapel. It It was soon after we built the prayer chapel, maybe a year. And I was in the prayer chapel, and I was praying, and I know this sounds very strange, I hesitate to do this on streaming, but I was, <laughs> I was in the prayer chapel and I was thrust a hundred years into the future. And I was in this palace. I don't know if it was a palace or a mansion or just this really beautiful, huge house. And, uh, and I was standing next to an old man and I could see him perfectly, but he couldn't see me. And it was like a family reunion. And the old man was, uh, they had some little children around him and he was doing what old men do. He was just kind of musing and telling stories and, and people, you know, the kids were like half paying attention. And then all of a sudden, in the vision, the old man's voice, his, his voice changed, his, his emphasis changed in his voice. And he started to tell his children about their divine history. And as he did, and as he did, 
the family in the vision began to gather. The women out of the kitchen, the men out of the front room, and pretty soon there was, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people, a very large family. They, they, they gathered around the old man, and the old man began to, and he was, the old man was telling them about their divine history. They were all sitting in the room around him. You could hear a pin drop as they were hanging on every word as this old man began to tell them about the divine exploits and the history of their forefathers and how they had gotten to this place in God. And all of a sudden, the old man, there was a big fireplace right in front, a very high fireplace that almost went, was probably as high as the ceiling, made out of stone. And this old man, with me standing next to him, he went like this, and all of this, and when he said all of this in the, in the vision, I knew he meant all of this favor, all of this wealth, all of this power. He said, all of this came, and he points to the fireplace, and over the fireplace is a huge portrait of my wife and I. And he said, all this came from your great-great-grandmother and grandfather. And as soon as he said that, the vision ended, and I'm back in the prayer chapel on the floor. And the Lord said to me, I've called you to quit your ministry and begin a legacy. From this day forward, you will live for a generation you will never see. And I began to realize that I'm not living for myself. I began to realize that I'm not living for myself that I'm living for people who went before me, that I'm living for people who are with us, the people we talk about all the time, but I'm also living for a generation that is yet to be born. I'm reminded of King David and all through the Bible. There are kings after David died, a hundred, two, three, four hundred years after David's dead, and God says to them, as in 2 Kings chapter 15, God says to, the, to wicked kings, I would remove you, I would destroy you. It's Old Testament. <laughs> Except for your father, David, who did right in my sight. And he tells the kings, I will bless you, not because you deserve it, but because your father, David, served me. And I promised him I would bless the generations after him. You know what's interesting? First of all, in, in this case, 2 Kings 15, the king in that chapter, he's not even David's biological son. And God calls him the son of David. What's my point? My point is, is that we win a personal victory in God. Are you with me? I'm saying, when we live, when we receive Jesus, we received eternal life. Not just eternal life from this day forward. We got saved into a cosmic family, past, present, and future. Are you following me? Jesus is the one who was. Jesus is currently the one who was. He's currently the one who is. And he's currently the one who is to come. And when I received Jesus, I, was, I received Jesus into this eternal, I received Jesus into this eternal family, past, present, and future. The people who went before me are affecting me. The people who are with me are obviously affecting me. But also the people who are yet to come are still affecting me. Are you with me? There's this great story in the book of uh, Genesis about Abraham and his cousin Lot is living in Sodom. And the king of Sodom and, their, and his country, this kind of city-state, got in a war with five other kings. So four kings against five kings, they get in this battle. And the four kings, Sodom king, the king of Sodom being one of them, they lose the battle and they get captured by these five kings and they take all the people of those five countries and they, they become POWs, 
prisoners of war. Well, Lot is one of the prisoners. And Abraham finds out that Lot's a prisoner, and he takes 600 men. It's only one paragraph in the Bible. It deserves a whole movie. He takes 600 men, and he goes after five kings, and the Bible doesn't tell us anything about the battle except for Abraham beats five kings with 600 men. It's, now, the story's already strange, right? So Abraham's in the field, in the battlefield, with his men, and they're picking up all the spoils. And in the battlefield steps a man, and the Bible says this, a man who has no beginning and has no end. Okay, story's getting weirder. Here comes a man, he has no beginning, and he has no man in, and his name is Melchizedek. Abraham sees this man, and get this, who has no beginning and no end, and for some reason he knows the man is eternal. And the Bible says that Abraham takes 10%, a tithe, he takes a tithe of all the spoils, and he gives it to this man who has no beginning and no end. Story's already strange, right? The book of Hebrews chapter 7 recounts the story. And it adds this to it. When Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, a man who lives in eternity. Levi tithed to Melchizedek. You're like, what? I'm sorry, what's your point? Abraham had Isaac when he was very old. Follow me? Isaac had Jacob. You remember this? Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons was named Levi. Follow me? When Abraham tied to Melchizedek, it says Levi tithed to Melchizedek. Only thing is, Levi won't be born for 140 years. But the Hebrew writer says that when Abraham tithed, that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. And because he was in the loins of Abraham, and because he tied to a man who had no beginning and no end, when, Levi, when Abraham tied to Melchizedek, Levi got credit for tithing when Eli, Levi won't even be born for 140 years. You're like, what's the point? This is fatherhood. This is what the absence of fathers have brought the lack of legacy to a culture and people are like, I don't even know why I'm working at this job. I hate this job. Well, maybe you're not working there for you. Is it possible that the world is bigger than you? Is it possible that you're not playing chess on a one-level chessboard, but on a three-dimensional chessboard? Is it possible that people who went before you and people who are, are with you and people who are after you are all important to your story? That your story isn't your story. It's his story. His story. Well, I don't like this job, but God sent me here. I don't even know why I'm here. Because you're thinking you. You're not thinking y'all. You're not thinking y'all. Are you with me? There's a great story in the book of Hebrews. We don't have time to read the whole story, but it's in Hebrews chapter 11. And you can just make a note of it. And it's a story of all these people who went before us, before us, all y'all, and they did a crazy, amazing exploits for Jesus. And it names Moses. It, it names Elijah. It names Sarah. It names all these people who serve God. And it goes on to say the world wasn't even worthy of these people. They were so amazing. And then he says that God made all of them promises. You have to read the, the story. It's, it's profound. It's, it's 36 verses 
of people who did amazing stuff by faith. It says, and God said, I'm going to give you these promises. But then, at the end of their life, God says, listen, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, God, it goes on to say, I'm sorry, let me fix it. It goes, the Hebrew writer goes on to say that they, all the promises that God promised them, he didn't give them. Because God had something better for us. That apart from us, they wouldn't receive their promise. Follow me. The next verse is Hebrews 12.1, which is the worst chapter break in the entire Bible. Because if you read chapter 11 and you read chapter 12 the next day, you actually miss the entire point of chapter 11. Because the climax of chapter 11 is in the first two verses of chapter 12. Whoever did the chapter break was on, he was like, must have been done on Friday. Because <laughs> the chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of, of God the Father. What's the point he's making? When I was in high school, as a freshman, we had the fastest um, sprinter in American history running as, our, as a senior. He was a senior. His name was Benny Brown. And he broke every single American record for, at the time, 100-yard dash, now it's 100 meters, 220, which is now 200 meters, and 440 relay. He was the fastest, he was the fastest high school human being in the history of America. And therefore, the newspapers, the national newspapers, would, would came to his, his final races, the state championships and so on, because he was breaking all the records. The very last race that Benny Brown ran as a high school, as, as, a, as a, a high school student, was the 440 relay, and he ran the, as the anchor man in the 440 relay. Now you probably know this, but you, in, in relays, you typically put your second fastest man first, and your fastest man runs, runs anchor. And so this race, it was the very last race of Benny Brown's um, uh, high school career. He'd broken most every record. And uh, the track teams were on the inside and the grass, and of course the stands were full, and the newspapers, national newspapers, were there because it was the state championship. So the, when the gun went off, there was eight lanes, and when the gun went off, um, our, our first man did pretty well, and he passed the baton to the second guy, and I don't remember what, what place we were in, but we, weren't, we definitely weren't leading. We were like third or fourth place. And when they passed it to the third man, we were still about the same place, and when the third man passed the baton to Benny Brown, the baton dropped. Now, as you know, if you've ever watched race, and I, I don't even know if there's, that's disqualified now, but it wasn't in those days. The baton hit the ground on the end of a baton, and it jumped, and it, and it bounced up. We were running on the artificial turf. And Benny grabbed the baton and took off running. Now, normally the race is over because the race is won in hundreds of seconds. And he takes off, and he's obviously in eighth place, and he passes the seventh place guy, the sixth place guy, the fifth place guy, the fourth place guy, and now everybody from every, every school, all, the, all the, the people in the stands are standing, and they're all chanting for Benny, even if they're from another school. And so they're chanting, Benny Brown, Benny Brown, Benny Brown. And we're, of course, in the middle, and we're yelling, and we're running in the inside with him, and the, you know, the cameras are rolling, and he takes the fourth guy, then the third guy, and then the second guy, he's in second place, and he's running for the, the tape, and we're all yelling, come on, come on. And he gets to the, the final to the tape, and he leans over the tape, and he wins by a hundredth of a second. <laughs> 
Didn't break any records, but won the final race in hundreds of seconds after dropping the baton. Of course, the place goes mad, you can imagine. What I learned from that relay race is that the team, all of our team, the first guy, he didn't get a trophy for where he, where he was when he handed off the baton. Or the second guy or the third guy. Everybody got the same trophy where Benny finished. They all got the first place trophy. You know why? Because they all got the benefit of the fastest man. See, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament. That's what Jesus said. But the least in the kingdom was greater than John. See, God promised all the Old Testament people stuff. But if God would have given them a trophy, an award, a reward, he would have had to give them second, third, fourth place. And God goes, I got something better for us. The Texans have the right word. All y'all. When God says, all you all, he's not talking about all y'all. He's talking about all y'all. You're not getting this. When Paul says, preserve the unity of the spirit, he's not just talking about y'all. He's talking about all y'all. The people who went before you have yet to receive their promise. Because God's got something better for them and they are in us. The people who died that went before us, they ain't dead. They're watching us. We have a great cloud of witnesses watching us. Why are they watching you? Because they haven't received the reward. Their promises are in you because God says, I'm going to wait till the fastest man gets on the field. And what the fastest man gets, I'm going, to give to, I'm going to give to all the people who went before him, to Moses and Elijah and David. God says, you guys, you were a little slow, but the fastest man is running, and what they win, I'll give to everybody. This is the story of the man in the field who came. One guy came at, you know, at 8 in the morning, next guy came at 10, next guy came at 12. You don't get the idea, and Jesus gave them all the same pay. What are you trying to say? Jesus is about legacy and inheritance. Jesus is like, you're running, and you're not running for you, baby. You're running for people who went before you. You're running for people who are with you. And get this, you're running for people who are yet to be born. This is who you are. Life isn't all about you. You are a piece. You are one player. You are one mother. You are one father. You are one son. You are one daughter. You play a big role, but it's not all about you. And let me tell you, when you wake up in the morning and you think it's all about you, you spend all your time trying to stay out of pain or find pleasure, but you realize in a father's house, there are many seats. You play one role that affects everybody else. We are all interconnected, all the way back to Adam, all the way back to, to Abel, all the way back to the, the early saints. We are all connected. But I'm going to tell you something. You're connected to your great-great-grandchildren who are yet to be born. You are carrying them in, their, in your loins. And when you give into eternity, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your life. When you live for eternity, you reap a legacy. And your great-great-grandkids, are, they are benefiting from the sacrifices that you've made to live a noble life. Instead of choosing sin, you chose nobility. And you're not the only one benefiting. That's who you are. Would you stand? Would you put your hand up?
on your heart. I believe this is the word of the Lord. It's not a message. It's an impartation. God is calling fathers home. Fathers home. There are people in this room. You, you haven't seen your children in years. I say this by the word of the Lord, not by, con, by, con, by condemnation or anything. And God is calling you. Pick up the phone. They're going to reject me. Pick up the phone. Do what fathers do. Fathers don't run from trouble. They run to trouble. Fathers are there first. Fathers protect. Fathers say, if you mess with my kids, you're messing with me first. This is what you do. You, you, you brave rejection and you step into, I'm a dad. I believe God's calling you, some of you, to restore your marriages. I believe that God is restoring marriages right here. I believe God is redeeming people. I believe that God is redeeming families. I believe that some of you are sons and daughters, and you haven't seen, uh, you're watching, some of you watching by Bethel TV, you haven't seen your family in years. Uh, maybe you didn't have the best parents. But listen, forgiveness is so important. You can't live offended because you're a part of something bigger. And it's affecting your children. It's affecting the people who went before you. God, I just release a fathering spirit over this generation, over these people in this congregation, over the sin right now. I pray that the sin would get this prophetic declaration too. And Lord, I pray that you would release it over this movement. I pray that this, this, this little trickle would become a great river that would flow through the nations and heal the heart of nations in Jesus name and everybody said so be it God bless you thank you so much thanks so much for listening to my podcast if you want to find out more read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes go to chrisvelton.com have an awesome day